This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Now, live and direct from the press box at Old Comiskey Park, it's time for When Football Was Football. Let's join your host, Joe Ziemba, with another forgotten tale from Chicago's pro football history. Let's go! Thank you, as always, for that wonderful introduction. Well, tonight on this episode of When Football Was Football, I'm Joe Ziemba. We're going to move away from the friendly confines of the old press box at Comiskey Park, travel a little bit south and east across the state line. On Tuesday, October 18, 1938, it was one of the most unique days in the history of Hammond, Indiana. Nestled in the northeast corner of the state, the solidly blue-collar metropolis of Hammond is actually closer to downtown Chicago than many of the Windy City's far-flung suburbs. Yet, as close as it resides to Chicago, the two cities are really worlds apart. So on this episode here on the Sports History Channel, we'll return to that night in Hammond when both George Hellas of the Chicago Bears and First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt visited at the same time and both were competing for the attention of the local residents. And you may have heard of Hammond. It is the setting for the beloved film A Christmas Story, where it's called Holman in the movie, and is the cozy next-door neighbor of notorious Kelly City, Illinois, a favorite hiding place for infamous Chicago underworld mobsters in the 1920s and 30s. Cal City was also the fictional location of the orphanage that needed to be saved in the Blues Brothers movie. You remember, we're on a mission from God. Fans, football fans may recall that the Hammond Pros were one of the original members of the American Professional Football Conference in 1920, which quickly evolved into the National Football League. And while the Hammond Pros failed to survive much past those early years in the NFL, the city continued to staunchly support competitive sports activity from basketball to prize fighting to local football teams. One of the more intriguing squads to emerge from the back streets of Hammond was called the Calumet Indians. In fact, different reincarnations of this club utilized a variety of names such as the Calumet Gunners, the Calumet All-Stars, and the Panthers. Although the Indians participated in several leagues over the years, perhaps they are best known and recognized for their efforts in the American Professional Football League in the 1930s. As with most minor professional leagues of the era, teams came and went rapidly and often disappeared into obscurity, alone and forgotten forever. However, one superb advantage in retrieving the history of any Hammond professional team is the legacy left by the extensive newspaper coverage from the Hammond Times. This was a daily newspaper which actually published morning and afternoon editions under several local banners, for example, the Lake County Times and the Munster Times, etc. As such, tracing the elusive history of the Calumet Indians proved challenging, but not inconvenient. But let's go back to October 18, 1938. On that memorable day in Hammond history, two American icons visited the city. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and George Hallis and the Chicago Bears of the National Football League. 
Although the Bears and the Indians tangled in a charity game played in a driving rainstorm on ironically called Roosevelt Field in nearby East Chicago, the unflappable Mrs. Roosevelt spoke on a title called The Individual and the Community in the dry and cozy confines of the Hammock Civic Center. In truth, various renditions of the Calumet Indians floated around in what is known as the Calumet region of northern Indiana for many seasons. However, in particular, this 1938 version seems to exemplify the grassroots intentions of the citizens to keep professional football alive in the city. That 1938 team itself was very strong and quite capable of competing against all levels of post-collegiate competition that was typical during this time period. The players were recruited from a wide variety of institutions ranging from Notre Dame and Ohio State to Bethel College and tiny St. Ambrose in Iowa. Directing this crew was the robust Fred Gillies, a former player from 1920 through 1926 and again in 1928, as well as a coach in 1928 of the Chicago Cardinals in the NFL. Gillies himself hailed from Chicago before attending Cornell University. He was also currently employed by Inland Steel as the assistant general manager, a tough job. It was a huge undertaking for Gillies to take on both of these positions at the same time. In the same issue of the Hammond Times, one could read about Gillies reporting on the production status at Inland Steel, while also commenting about the status of his football team's front line. So tryouts for the 1938 edition of the Calumet Indians began on August 23rd at Roosevelt Field in nearby East Chicago. Gillies needed to develop a cohesive and responsive lineup from a divergent group of players from a wide variety of football backgrounds, as we mentioned. One conflict off the field that impeded the efforts of Gillies, according to the Times, was many former university gritters had been unable to attend practice due to shifts in working hours. So practices were held at Roosevelt Field on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of each week in preparation for the league opener on October 2nd against American professional football league foe, the St. Louis Gunners. Probably the most insightful article on the Hammond team, as well as the APFL, appeared in just the second issue ever of the Coffin Corner, the great newsletter published by the Professional Football Researchers Association. In 1979, author Bob Brownwort examined the brief history of the league as well as the somewhat confusing genealogy of the Hammond team. Brownwort noted that the team was known as the Indian Steelmen and Panthers and was variously described as playing for Chicago, Calumet, Indiana Harbor, and East Chicago. Apparently, the habit of the constantly changing team name was quite annoying to some in Hammond, so a contest was held early in the 1938 season where fans could submit suggestions for renaming the club. The lucky winner would receive a bull of a watch donated by local jeweler Irving Chaikin, who was also the team's treasurer. Anyway, perhaps the winner was not selected since the contest quickly disappeared from the newspapers and a team change was not forthcoming. Early in the 1938 season, it was apparent that the upcoming battle with the Chicago Bears on October 18th would clearly be the highlight of the campaign for the Indians. 
The Bears contest was scheduled to benefit St. Catherine's Hospital, and the Hammond Times quickly proclaimed that a crowd of 14,000 is expected to witness the game. On the day before the game, on October 17th, the Times wrote, Coach Gillies is confident that the team will provide more thrills and give the Bears a harder battle than any of the previous squads which have played the Chicagoans the last three years. Gillies was indeed confident in his team by stating, I feel that this year's team is the strongest we've had. But he was also realistic about the Indians' chance of success due to his own extensive experience in the NFL, meaning minor league teams typically, if not always, had absolutely no chance to defeat an NFL club. By October 18th, the Bears were 4-1 on the NFL season with the best record in the league, while the Indians were 2-0 after impressive routes of both the St. Louis Gunners and the Nashville Rebels. Maybe the Hammond fans had a small glimmer of hope that the Bears might not take the game seriously, especially after defeating the rugged Chicago Cardinals 34-28 just two days previously. And would Coach George Hallis treat this event as merely a practice session for his reserves and leave the stars of the team at home? Maybe. Instead, Hallis was taking the game quite seriously and brought a full squad to Hammond, including future Hall of Fame linemen Joe Steidehar, George Musso, and Danny Fortman. The Indians responded with a seasoned roster pulled from 25 different colleges, all of whom were anxious to challenge the mighty Chicago Bears. The Hammond Times reported, To match this powerful aggregation, the Indians will offer several former college stars who have been impressive in the two games Coach Fred Gilley's team has played thus far. Included in that number were Purdue guard Andy Grant and Stan Mandala of Missouri. Both of these guys were members of the 1938 College All-Star Squad, which had defeated the Washington Redskins 28-16 in that annual contest. In the backfield, Gillies could rely on former Alabama halfback Jimmy Angelek and Illinois back Jack Craven. The previous season, for the same exhibition game, Gillies had managed to coax Jay Burwanger to play for the Indians, and that name might sound familiar. Burwanger was the first winner of the Heisman Trophy, as well as the very first pick in the initial NFL draft held in 1936. However, Burwanger and George Hellis of the Chicago Bears could not reach agreement on a contract, and Burwanger never played a down in the National Football League. Jay Burwanger saw just limited action and was not a factor in the exhibition battle between the two teams in 1937, but it marked his only post-collegiate appearance since the 1936 college All-Star game. Ticket sales were brisk and 14,000 were expected to be sold to benefit St. Catherine's Hospital. Yet as the game grew closer, the threat of rain and the much anticipated appearance of Eleanor Roosevelt on the same day in the same town of the game could hinder attendance. The First Lady's lecture would take place at the Hammock Civic Center and the Hammond Times naturally promoted this event as well. So while the Bears dominated the talk of the first page of the sports section, Mrs. Roosevelt was a primary subject on the first page of the newspaper. It was explained that the speaker would be aided by 18 Hammond policemen, not so much for safety reasons, but to keep publicity seekers and two ardent admirers from marring Mrs. Roosevelt's visit. 
On the evening of October 18th, there were 5,000 on hand to hear the message of Mrs. Roosevelt at the Hammock Civic Center, while the Chicago Bears attracted 7,000 in a steady rain at Roosevelt Field. While the speech of Mrs. Roosevelt provided no surprises, the Bears received quite a shock when the Indians were ahead of the heralded Chicagoans 6-2 at the half. My goodness! This was totally unexpected according to the Hammond Times, which said, Coach Fred Gilley's team showed plenty of class in marching to its touchdown and holding a slim four-point lead over the mighty Chicagoans in the first half. The somewhat unbelievable halftime score prompted the visitors to pull out all of their gridiron weapons in the second half. The Hammond Times stated, The Bears were compelled to turn on the power in the second half to win the game. They scored four touchdowns in their favorite spectacular manner, two of them on long runs. Terrific pounding by the Bears and lack of substitutes for the Indians, however, eventually proved disastrous. Well, that second-half outburst, including an 85-yard scoring run by Bob Swisher, allowed the Bears to escape with an easy 29-6 victory. Overall, a tidy sum was raised for St. Catherine's Hospital, the fans went home happy, and the Chicago Bears returned to NFL competition, but struggled down the stretch to finish with a 6-5 record for 1938. Meanwhile, the Calumet Indians grabbed the regular season crown of the American Professional Football League with a 5-1 mark, but fell to the Louisville Tanks 13-0 in the playoffs, ending their season. And if you're keeping track at home, you'll note that George Hellas and the Chicago Bears attracted a few more attendees than did First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt that night. But on this very special evening for the city of Hammond, Indiana, no one was counting. Please join us next time on the Sports History Network when we share a mysterious story about the legendary Red Grange of the Chicago Bears. Picture if you would a dark sweaty gym in Chicago where Grange was overseeing a workout by one of his teammates. Suddenly a smartly dressed young man slithers into the room and asks to speak to Grange. Was this an autograph speaker? Not this time, for the young man was Machine Gun Jack McGurn, one of the more notorious gangsters in the city of Chicago. And what did he want with Red Grange? Well, find out next time on When Football Was Football. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.